Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the OnScript Podcast with Matt Bates and Drew Johnson. And I'm coming to you today with a head cold. I just felt like I needed to confess that so that none of you think I got a voice change. And uh, in the interview that follows, you'll hear a little bit of that. But there are much more important things that you can listen to in the interview. Namely, Elaine T. James, who I am interviewing as part as the second in a two-part series on understanding and reading biblical poetry. So I hope you enjoy this. Don't have a lot more to say. So let's get right to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch here today with Dr. Elaine T. James, who is Assistant Professor of Theology at St. Catherine University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Elaine holds a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary and is the author of the book we're discussing today, Landscapes of the Song of Songs, Poetry and Place, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. She's also the co-editor with Blake Cooey of a volume that's coming out shortly called Close Readings, Biblical Poetry and the Tasks of Interpretation, and that's going to be by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Elaine, welcome to OnScript. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm curious how you got involved in biblical studies and, and what your journey was like leading to eventually writing this book on Song of Songs. Well, I was an English major in college. I loved literature and um, actually taught high school English after college and thought I loved it so much that I thought that was probably what I was going to do for a career. But I also had this interest in seminary and um, doing going to divinity school and uh, just a sense of curiosity about theology. And I thought maybe I would consider after the MDiv doing pastoral ministry. But when I went to Princess Seminary for my MDiv, I fell in love with Hebrew, and then I took a course on the Psalms, and then um, the rest is history. I really fell in love with biblical poetry and was delighted to be able to do a PhD in that, and now I teach um, biblical Hebrew literature, so I guess I'm not that far from being an English teacher after all. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And who were who some of the people at Princeton that inspired you in your study of the Hebrew Bible that kind of lit the fire and got you into it? Oh, I... I enjoyed a really rich time at Princeton Seminary with the faculty there. I think it was Leong Siao. Um, I took a course with him on the book of Job, who put a bug in my ear to think about doing a PhD in Old Testament because it hadn't really been on my radar to do so. Um, and I love taking classes with Kathy Sackenfeld and Jack Lapsley and Dennis Olson and... Um, then ultimately it was Chip Dobbs Alsop and his work on biblical poetry that um, gave me sort of a place and a sense of encouragement to do further study. Uh, great. And and Chip is seems to be generative and, and pushing people into the study of biblical poetry uh, specifically. So so is that kind of how you, you ended up pursuing this study in Song of Songs? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, I wouldn't say Chip pushes anyone to do biblical poetry. I would say more that his enthusiasm for it is infectious. Ah, uh-huh, yeah, <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, it, it's interesting when I when I first was thinking about pursuing biblical studies, um, I was at a, a Bible college in Philadelphia, and and one of the books that most excited me somehow I I taken a, a course in Deuteronomy and I had I had read Dennis Olson's book Deuteronomy and the Death of Moses. Um, and, and I thought that study was fantastic. So, so Princeton has had a a big influence on my journey via, uh, Dennis Olson. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. He's really great. So to your, to your book then, uh, Landscapes of the Song of Songs, uh, first of all, I I thought the book was fantastic and it's, it's such an enjoyable read and, and really a good, um, example of interdisciplinary study. Uh, so you, you've got these major sections of the book that look at different, landscapes in Song of Songs, and we'll talk about what that means. Um, but I was curious if if this book reflects um, your own experience in the land of Israel, or if it was more via uh, engagement with biblical authors that they took you to that 
that place? Like, how how did you fall fall in love with with landscapes, um, and particularly the landscape of Israel? I think that many of us connect to landscapes intuitively and primordially in our human experiences, particularly our our youth, our childhood and youth. We're deeply informed by the landscapes that shape us. When I teach the Song of Songs, I often ask students to start by reflecting on a landscape that they love. And um, what I experienced in the Song of Songs connected with my own, um, my own background in the sense that it tapped into an affective dimension of experience in a landscape, which is to say there wasn't, which is to say um, that people relate to landscapes emotionally with deep attachment and that that is um, a really significant part of their understanding of their significance, the significance of the landscape and the significance of their role in that landscape. So I grew up um, in a fairly, fairly rural context, and my family raised sheep for many years. And so when I encountered the Song of Songs, I felt that there was, and I have a deep, a deep love for that landscape where I grew up. I can hear it, I can see it, I can smell it, I can experience it in my memory in a very, in a very vivid way. And I think that I'm not alone in that. I think that is a, a, a human experience. And so I felt that the Song of Songs was really playing on, playing on and with that type of effective dimension of human experience in landscape. And so I wanted to explore that and to try to think about what the song is doing, how it's conceptualizing the natural world. Um, and that that's the that if affective emotional dimension isn't something that can be discounted as a significant part of experience in landscape. Yeah, as as uh, I was reading the book, it, it's interesting you ask your students that question because I asked myself that question as I was reading it. Um, so I I grew up on the East Coast near Philadelphia, um, not not too far from Princeton actually, and so I grew up going to Ralph Stover State Park. I don't know if you've ever been there. Have you been there during so. your time at Princeton? Okay, so it's about probably about forty five minutes away. It's a uh, the park is organized around a tributary that runs into the Delaware River. And and I've probably been to that park, you know, five, six hundred times. I don't know, you know, countless times. And I was there, you know, I grew up rock climbing there, mountain biking, hiking, and uh, even whitewater rafting there. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a very engaging place. And, and that's really bound up with who I am then. And... Uh, you know, if if I if my parents go back to the park, I want to know what condition the trails are in, and how many people were climbing, and what it looked like with the trees at, at the at certain overlooks. So so I'm really bound up with that place, and I think I think that's very true. And it it made me think that maybe is that kind of what you're doing in the book? Is you're saying that we can't we can't separate the the human love between the man and the woman from the love that a person has for a place and that typically interpreters have separated those things well you know uh i think that's a piece of it the song is always um includes in its vision not just erotic love but many different kinds of love and so um while interpreters have wanted to try to really isolate either this is an allegory so it's about divine love or it's, <clears throat> excuse me, erotic poetry, so it's about human love. Um, and I think the Song of Songs is fairly open and hospitable <laughs> to a variety of different kinds of loves and seeing their, um, their various ways of intersecting. Um, and one of the ways that the song does that is in how it persistently blurs boundaries between the lovers and the landscape. So it's always seeing the woman in terms of the landscape and the, uh, the man in terms of the landscape as well. You see him particularly identified with um, gazelles and sheep. And so there's this deep-seated vision that is it's very hard to extricate one specific type of meaning. I think that one this is one way that contemporary scholars are very different from the ancient world is that, um, like you and I have done, we have left our home places and made lives in new landscapes. And this is, of course, a, not unheard of, obviously, migration is real from the very beginnings of human history. But for a lot of people in a lot of human history, they just stayed in one place. And so that sense of um, belonging in a landscape, I think probably is more acute for um, 
for ancient people than it is for us. That's my suspicion anyway. Yeah. So as you spend time, as you spend a lifetime in a place, your your concepts of beauty are shaped by that specific location. And then that's going to that's going to sort of slide easily into the way you talk about love for other people, right? So that you kind of like move seamlessly between the two. Um, I think that's a nice way of saying it, yeah. So you've touched on the idea of allegory. And I had an interesting conversation with John Levinson in an earlier episode where where he talks about the the idea that, um, because I was asking him whether he thought allegorical readings of the book were... A plausible or legitimate or, or a good way to go, something along those lines. Um, and he made the point that for ancient Jewish, Jewish and Christian interpreters, when they offered allegorical interpretations, they were they weren't necessarily denigrating the the bodily sex, the uh, sexual relationship, but actually elevating the significance of it by by tapping into the the religious dimension of it. And I and I found that. Interesting. I'm not sure I agree with it necessarily, but I but it was an intriguing way of thinking about. He he said something to the effect. I don't have the quote uh, that sex is never just sex. There's there's always a kind of added meaning when you set it in a social context or in a religious context and so on. Uh, and I thought that's kind of what it seemed like you were doing with the land, where you're saying that these two, like the relationship between the man and the woman, is is tied up in the relationship between humans and the land and that as you link the two and talk about sex you're raising the the significance of land and as you talk about the land you're raising the significance of of the sexual relationship so i didn't know if if you had any thoughts on that that wasn't really a question but (laughs) (laughs) no that's very interesting um yeah, what is the place of what is the place of sex? It's interesting to think that um, by allegorical interpretations, this is not evidence of a denigration of sexuality or of um, the body. I would have to think about that a little more. I guess I think that there's something to that. I don't think there's a lot that's in the. I mean, just in terms of the textuality of the song, I don't think that there's um, much that's denigrated. There isn't much either, though, that's explicitly theological or relig- there isn't much actual religious language, although there is enough overlap between um, the language of the Song of Songs and the marriage metaphors of the prophets to maybe that would be the best way to think about um, Levinson's point is that somehow those languages of the metaphor of marriage and the language of love are so deeply um, interconnected that they are mutually influential. Yeah, I'm not sure where where I land on it, but I do think that um, you know one effect of having a book like Song of Songs in the canon is that it raises questions around whether there's a theological layer to the book, and I'm sure um, you've wrestled with that at various points. Because so uh, you know, for our listeners who who aren't aware of this, the Song of Songs doesn't mention the name God in it the name of God. And so that's sent interpreters scrambling to try to figure out whether there's theological significance. So it's kind of like Esther in that sense. And if you take the book on its own and just pulled it out of the canon, then you probably would be, you wouldn't necessarily go there, but you set it in the canon and it raises that question, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Which is why modern interpreters have, um, pushed against the history of interpretation and wanted to see it very much as erotic poetry, as love poetry, as human poetry. And very much there's a, there's definitely a driving humanistic concern in the poetry. I mean, it's about two lovers. But um, you're right. In the whole history of interpretation, for millennia, people saw this as about more than just human love. And so there's probably something to, so something worth holding on to there, at least. So I, I like that what you're doing then is you're saying, okay, yes, there is more than human love, and people have often gone to theology for that, but clearly the book is also saying love for land, and, and we've really missed out on that. So um, you've positioned the study as a, as a cultural excavation of, of here I'm quoting you, ancient conceptualizations of the land. So I'm curious of, of how ancient people, you know, you've touched on the idea that ancients stayed in one place longer, but what are maybe some other ways that they 
they thought about the land that's different from how we might think about the land? Well, one of the most obvious ways is in the um, daily realities of food production. So for the ancients, unlike for many moderns, much of their time of their days and their lives would have been spent in the actual material processes of food production. And so um, there is, and I emphasize this in um, my first chapter, that there's a very striking agrarian dimension to the Song of Songs that seems to capitalize on that reality. Of course, um, in the modern Western world, I don't know what the percentage is now. I think there's some it's something like 90% of us have nothing to do with the production of our own food anymore, which is sort of the exact opposite of how the percentages would have worked out in the ancient world, where most that's what most people were doing most of the time. So when they're talking about vineyards and um, and olives and raisins and apples, they're talking about the stuff of their everyday life. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not it's not all exotic to them. Um, uh, or or as you point out, that they, they don't operate with the same. Uh, nature culture division that we have um, of of the idea of sort of going out into nature as a move away from where you live your everyday life. Right. Um, so which, this is that was actually thank you for mentioning this. This is actually a point of a point of entry for me in my study because when I started becoming interesting interested in the idea of um, landscape and nature, it was from a an ecological perspective. I was interested in the ecological concerns of the text. And its conceptualization of the natural world, and I found that it was very, it was pervasive in the scholarly, the scholarly literature to talk about nature versus culture, male versus female, public versus private. Those are very uh, highly reified categories in the scholarly literature on the Song of Songs, and I felt like it didn't quite match up with what I was finding in the text itself. And so um, I was looking for a theoretical framework that would be a little bit more nuanced and that would take it into consideration or enabled me to describe with more accuracy um, some of the complex layering of landscapes that I saw in the text. And so I found that theoretical framework in um, landscape theory and geography in geography studies. And um, in that view, um, landscape is both a process that is it's a material reality. Humans shape their landscapes and are shaped by their landscapes in turn. And it's also an experience. There's an aesthetic dimension. Landscape, of course, as we think about it in art history, in aesthetics, is a view that's perceived by um, by the human eye and that's invested with meaning. And therefore, it has these um, deep symbolic resonances as well. So this idea that landscape is both process and experience helped me to understand what I was finding in the text of the Song of Songs, which is very much aestheticized um, and very much concerned with the human perceiver, but at the same time, consistently enmeshed in and concerned about that material reality of engagement within the landscape. Landscape as process. And um, for me, that was illuminating. It helped me to to see and describe the consistently overlapping landscapes that you see in the Song of Songs. And it helped me to get around that nature versus culture dichotomy. So scholars often talk about how the, they would flee from the city into wild nature. And um, th that's not utterly untrue, but neither is it nuanced and I think accurate enough to account for what we see in the Song of Songs. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like it comes out of the Romantic movement where in with the rise of industrialism, uh, artists were wanting to kind of go back to nature and and rediscover that. So you have impressionist artists like Monet kind of going going wanting to capture the experience of that movement out. But of course, that's away from factories that are you know, pumping out black smoke, um, and that's a little bit different from uh, an agrarian village where you're you're all farmers and and tending to the vineyards, and you know that's the, your your life is a lot more fluid with with the quote-unquote natural world, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I found in the song that it's much more, it's not particularly interested in the wilderness, although wild spaces do occur now and again. It's much more preoccupied with the more medial landscapes of the, the vineyard and the fields, those things that would have been persistently um, interacted with in the course of daily life. Yeah. Uh, another another place that I see that nature versus culture division show up in interpretations of song, song of songs are 
um, I can't remember where I heard this theory, so you have to help me here. Uh, but the the idea that um, some people read the book as a, a kind of competition between uh, a woman who's in the city and a woman who's uh, kind of from the country. Is that, am I making this up or are, are <laughs> there some? made it up. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, yeah, that comes from a sort of 20th century readings of the Song of Songs that try to see, um, try to construct sort of a meta narrative. So imagining that the Song of Songs is a drama and trying to see like, who are the actors and how are they speaking to one another? Um, but it's not at all clear that this is a drama. It certainly is dialogical. And so it shares some things in common with the dramatic, but um, that attempt to like sort out different characters in order to account for um in order to account for these diverging and converging landscapes of city and um, field, et cetera, is, uh, I, I don't find it terribly persuasive, but you're right. It does sort of succumb to that dichotomization, the desire to see these tidy landscapes that can be separated out, city versus country, for example. Yeah, you've got urban woman competing with country woman, and, and yeah. they're somehow vying yeah. for the man's attention. Yeah, he's got to choose. A man wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> a man wrote that scholarship. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. Um, so so uh, you, you've touched on another point, which is that you, you don't see the book um, falling, unfolding a, a, a neat and sequential drama, right? No, um, yes. And if you use the term lyrical to describe the kind of poetry in the book. I'm wondering if you could talk about lyric poetry and how that then affects how we read song of songs. Yeah, sure. Well, this is one way that I am very much indebted to my advisor, Chip Dobbs Alsop, who um, his book on biblical poetry, he makes a pretty sustained argument that much of what we see in biblical poetry, though not not all, is um, can be considered lyric in the sense that it's relatively short. It's non-narrative. It is um, invested in features like uh, voice and musicality, things that we sh- that they share in common with a broader lyrical tradition. Um, and so the Song of Songs is very much characterized by those things. Um, and for, to my sensibility, a, the, the usefulness of that in thinking about the Song of Songs is that um, it takes you away from the need to find a, a, an explanatory narrative because the song is not interested in giving us a straightforward narrative. And so our um, desire to find one is resisted at every turn by the text of the Song of Songs. It wants us to to draw us in, I think, to um, a different mode of apprehension. Mm. So, so I guess that's kind of what what um, Chip Dobbs Alsop was doing with Lamentations, saying there's not you can't find like a story that begins in Lamentations one and continues through, but this is more it's more episodic and it's it's taking you it's giving you snippets, but not an overarching story. And to so to interpret Song of Songs correctly is doesn't mean that we excavate the the underlying story and then say, okay, here's the here's what's going on, right, right, right. Um, okay, so in addition to that idea of lyric poetry, um, you know, part of this the, having these two episodes with you and Blake on on poetry is is to help listeners grapple with uh, how to read and interpret biblical poetry better. Um, what are maybe two or three pointers that you could give for people that are wanting to get into biblical poetry and have little experience with it and just want to kind of understand it better, maybe appreciate it better? That's a great question. Well, um, the first thing that I would suggest is to slow down. That's this. That's the single most difficult demand that poetry makes. Um, it's probably the hardest to honor in our culture of speed um, because poetry demands a certain um, pace of reading that is just different from narrative. And it asks that you dwell in the poem itself. And so I think the best way to do that is to read slowly and to read um, more than one time. So instead of sitting down and trying to read the whole Song of Songs at once, although it's possible, it's only eight chapters, um, that a a reader new to biblical poetry might slow down and read a couple poems, read the first chapter slowly and several times. I think that's the best way to begin. And then... um, and then it unfolds from there. There's there's some good literature there about there about um, 
reading biblical poetry. Do you have a recommendation? But I think the, the first task is the first task is reading. Um, well, Dobbs Ossoff's book is very good, but for the beginning reader, it might be a bit long and dense. Um, Patrick Miller has a good book on interpreting biblical poet, uh, interpreting, I don't know the title, interpreting the Psalms or something like that. And that has a nice, uh, a nice introduction as well. But paying attention, I think paying attention to things like metaphor and rhythm, cadence, sometimes reading in multiple translations helps for, for people who are not reading in Hebrew. Um, some people find the King James version to be very beautiful in terms of its translations of some of the poetry, although it has its shortcomings, obviously. But yeah, to remember that the point of poetry is not so much to um, figure it all out. And I think this is where people get get um, afraid maybe of poetry or maybe they had a bad English class in high school where they felt like um, they were always getting it wrong. But the point I think of much poetry is to sort of invite you into the space of the poem um, in a more contemplative mode often than other types of non-poetic texts. And so to come in sort of with a sense of hospitality to that and a willingness to um, let it play on your imagination, I think is the best way forward. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, so so the idea, I, I think that's so foreign, I think for a lot of us uh, who, especially for those of us who come at scripture from a religious perspective, where the deriving of meaning is the is the purpose of reading scripture. So, um, I mean, that's what exegesis is, right? Drawing out the meaning so that, that so you can have that. And so the idea of reading that's not aimed at at meaning making, I think is a is a big paradigm shift, um, probably for a lot of us. So is it kind of like you go in with the aim of having an experience? Yeah, that's nicely said. You go in with the aim of having an experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, well, people, it's not so foreign to people because I think people listen to um, song lyrics in this way that they don't feel as constrained. They can enjoy listening to songs and have a relationship to their lyrics and be understood and uh, have them be sort of allured by song lyrics without feeling like they completely understand them. And yet when it comes to poetry, especially perhaps you may be right, perhaps under the influence of particular models of meaning making, um, people don't think that they're able to do that with biblical poetry or any poetry, probably. Um, but the poem does and invites you into a certain way of looking, perhaps a certain way of feeling. And it engages the, this is not to say that I that it doesn't also do intellectual work, because I think that it does, but it's of a different order than other types of texts, in part because I think its main aim is not always propositional. And maybe that's the thing that people have a hard time getting out from under. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, um, and this is a point I raised as well with Blake, is that when you're, um, it, okay, if the aim is not simply to derive meaning from it, um, the other challenge with poetry, uh, and this is where I think your music analogy is helpful, is that if it's not part of the grand biblical story, it's hard to think about like where we situate it, where we where we fit this into our, our our kind of concept of what the Bible is and what it's supposed to be doing. Because if you if you come at Scripture from a sort of salvation history perspective, then what what does Song of Songs have to offer? You know, like what what what's its contribution? Um, so I think that's a challenge. Yeah. Well. <laughs> it is a challenge, but perhaps what the Song of Songs offers is a corrective to thinking single-mindedly about salvation history. Certainly um, classed in the writings, it has a lot in common with the valorization of human lived experience, normal human life. The Song of Songs is very much concerned about just normal people. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I guess maybe I'm sort of going against what I just said, but I had a, another question. Um, I, I really liked your section called the garden is a garden. Um, and, and your point there seemed to be that the Song of Songs sees the garden as a legitimate object of delight and longing and all these things, um, and that the, the writer simply just loves the natural world. And, and I think that was, a, that was a helpful point because, and it ties into something in, in Genesis 1, where you have this, 
the first five days of creation are declared good, apart from human utility or any human benefit or anything like that. There's just a, a sort of goodness uh, to the world. Um, and you write on page 57 that a, a landscape approach, which is what you take in the book, helps us to dwell with the poem's um, different landscapes, appreciating their materiality and their aesthetic dimensions and ultimately shaping ethical responses to the land. So I was wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about how a, a landscape reading of Song of Songs has ethical implications. Insofar as it commends a particular way of seeing, the song models responses to and values about the natural world. And so that's something that um, you see in the garden text, for example, um, which which is one of the most descriptively dense in the Song of Songs. There are um, a high concentration of botanical terms here that build up a picture of, uh, of a garden, a real garden. And so interpreters have wanted to move away from that quickly to interpret it, right, as the garden is actually um, the body of the young woman, which there certainly are metaphorical dimensions there. Um, but if we, if you spend a little bit of time with that text, what you see is this interweaving of native and exotic species and, um, exoticism in gardening practice, as we know, was pervasive in the ancient world as it is in the contemporary world, and that it was also a prized cultural value. And so there's this sense of the ability to, um, the ability to garden, the ability to fold exotic species into the province of the known and through uh, care and the intervention of the gardener to see them flourish, suggests something to us of a stance toward, a stance toward the garden. Um, and that's a stance that is characterized by long-term careful cultivation. And so that in itself is a disposition that is assumed and not just assumed, but also recommended by the Song of Songs. And so I think readers who come to the song with ethical interests can sort of see some of those ethical leanings emerging out of some of the poems. Yeah. And, and I think that ties into uh, a quote that you had in your book from Wendell Berry, where he talks about, he says, there's an uncanny resemblance between our behavior toward each other and our behavior toward the earth. By some connection that we will not recognize, the willingness to exploit one becomes the willingness to exploit the other. And so I, th I think, you know, that really touches on an ethical dimension of, of a, a landscape approach that sees if you see humans bound up with a the land, then, then my response to another person, the way I treat another person has ecological implications. And, and the way I treat the land has... Uh, human implications in a way that I think, you know, I really like that little phrase there by some connection. And that I think sums up maybe the cultural difference between moderns and ancients is that they saw an inherent connection between humans and the earth. And, and of course that bore with it all, all kinds of ethical uh, implications. Well, I expect they saw it because they couldn't help but see it every day, right? When you are, for your survival depended on the food that you're raising daily, right, by your own labor, um, the connection's obvious. I think it's more the fact that we uh, have in the modern world, particularly, and this is a point that agrarians make to great effect, particularly as we've separated ourselves from um, the sources of food production, that we've imagined that we aren't connected, and that's simply a, a modern malady more than it is a, and a distortion of viewing um, on our part mm, right yeah uh, do you do you have a favorite um poem from the song of songs and and i was wondering if you'd be be willing to to read some of it for us well um there's a lot of good ones <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's hard to pick but yeah i'd be happy to so um I think one of the most intricate and interesting poems of the song is in chapter two. I'll read from the NRSV. So um, chapter two, uh, let's see, verses eight through 13. The voice of my beloved. Look, he comes leaping on the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. 
Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away, for now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Hmm. So It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it really is. So what... What do you appreciate about that poem? The first thing that you notice about it is that it's rich in descriptors of the natural world, and they appeal to uh, multiple senses. So we have climatological features. The, the rain is over and gone. The winter is past. We have botanical features. The flowers appear on our earth, as well as we see the turtle dove, the fig with its figs. The vines are in blossom. Um, so it's a really redolent text. It also appeals to the oral, the, um, uh, the, the sense of hearing. The time of singing has come, hazamir. And so you get this very, um, very synesthetic, very full-bodied ex- evocation of an experience in a landscape. And that itself is quite beautiful. But then this is also highly aestheticized. It's very... Um, clearly wrought. It has a very nice structure. And one of the structural features that's remarkable is that it is the voice of the woman speaking, um, the voice of my beloved. So she hears her lover approaching. Um, But then this frames the voice of the man. So you have the woman's speech, but then she's quoting the man speaking within her own speech. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise my fair one and come away. And then there's a further in framing of voice. Um, where the woman quoting the man quotes the turtle dove. He says, the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. (laughs) I hadn't noticed that. (laughs) And so this, uh, this is a kind of a self-conscious, I think, artful framing of voice. What it does. And I think one of the ways that it um, is interesting in terms of a landscape perspective is that it emphasizes the materiality of life in a landscape. And it has these agricultural dimensions um, the word that I highlighted, singing, hazamir, can also mean pruning. And while the English translation has to choose one or the other, um, in the Hebrew, it seems like there's this ambiguity there that is um, the poem is happy to exploit. This is an agricultural season that celebrates human experience in landscape in a very material kind of way. Um, but it's also celebratory, right? The singing um, suggests as much. And it also puts the singing in terms of, um, in close parallelism with the voice of the turtle dove. So you have these two um, vocal expressions coming that are closely aligned with one another. So the human and the um, animal at the same time. But you also get these blurred boundaries, as I mentioned earlier, these blurred boundaries between the, um, the human and uh, elements of the landscape. So um, verse eight starts, the voice of my beloved, kol dodi, kol, voice. It can mean either voice or just plain old sound. And um, if you look in the scholarly literature, you'll find that interpreters are divided on which one it means. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes leaping on the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is a gazelle or a young stag. So is this the sound of a gazelle who's leaping and approaching the... um, the household, or is this the voice of the lover who's speaking? The song once again seems quite happy with the um, with the implication that it could be either one, and so he's the the boundaries between the male lover and the gazelle he's met, metaphorized as are are very fuzzy, um, and so there are elements like that that are just um, are just very interesting, uh, very aesthetically rich, I think. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I'm glad, I'm glad you you took us through that. So thank you for that. Um, I feel like we got a a little poetry sort of uh, <laughs> seminar with you. Um, which thank is, you which for is, indulging me. <laughs> no, it's it's really it's really good. Um, I I think I think that that gives a a little kind of window into some of the things that as as those who are listening to this podcast uh, go to look at biblical poetry that they can kind of look for those kinds of features. Um, so I think it's one thing to give people 
different definitions and terms uh, that they need to use when looking at poetry. Another thing to kind of walk walk through it. So thank you. Um, I, I was intrigued by your discussion of the landscape of the body as well. And I think I think a lot of us have seen those literalistic pictures of the woman in the Song of Songs. So yes. you, you've got with um, the she, goat, the hair is a flock of goat, a literal yeah, flock of goats. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So if you combine all the images, it doesn't doesn't quite work, especially for us. Um, she she's got like wine in her her navel, and then a heap of wheat on her belly, and then ivory ivory neck, uh, ivory tower is a neck. Um, so we're obviously culturally distanced from this way of speaking at, uh, about beauty. So what do you think we're missing as moderns it, with regard to how how they talked about bodily beauty and maybe if you could sort of differentiate between how they talked about bodily beauty and how we talk about it now um even you know obviously there are cultural um images that are different but are there any other sort of differences i'm sure that there are um what i noticed when i was reading the descriptive poems is um that there, there's these three descriptive poems of the body of the woman, and they're not, they share features, but they're not identical. And so um, Cheryl Exum observed sort of um, almost, almost offhandedly, she nicely observed in her commentary that um, they are sort of progressively building up a bigger picture. And so I was very curious about this, which um, also comported well with my own observation about the about those texts, that they are what um, we can think of as a conceit of process. It's as though it's as though the poet is looking repeatedly with an attempt to um, pro- to um, account for the experience of beauty. So it's not so much that it's trying to accurately describe beauty, whatever that means, but that it is attempting to, again, tap into this affective dimension. So what is it like to be in the experience of some of the beloved, of the object of your desire? So this isn't something that can be comprehended at a single glance. And I think that is something that is observable in um, the descriptive poems that they become more complete over time they become more detailed and when you get to the final descriptive poem it's also um, more synesthetic so it appeals to more of the senses more of the dimensions of human experience which implies a a closer proximity to the lover as well sight as we know as a sense is our most distant sense you can see something far away that you can't hear and um, taste and touch, of course, and smell are the much more proximate senses. And those are exploited more um, clearly in the final descriptive poem. And so these elements suggest um, an an attempt to offer an aesthetic response to the beloved's beauty. Um, And it's a process that takes place over time. So I think that I, I now I said all that in avoidance of your actual question, which is about how does this differ from what moderns see? And the thing that strikes me the most, of course, is that the um, um, vantage that's assumed by the descriptive poems is one that is technologically impossible. And that's something that's hard to remember. But the idea of seeing in broad scope as a um, as from a bird's eye view is not technologically possible in the ancient world. It's an imaginative stance. Um, Whereas for us, we're used to seeing that vantage all the time, whether we're flying in an airplane or um, looking at drone footage. I think that's a thing people do now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And and that even the um, representation of human forms Um, we think about, we don't give a second thought to the fact that we see pictures of people all the time. And there is a certain arguable objectification that happens in that process. But, um, but that technology isn't available in the ancient world either. And so um, I think we have to think of it more in terms of a summoning of the presence, a response to beauty and a summoning of the lover's presence. That is, um, that is imaginative um, through and through. Mm-hmm. So, so the um, the speaker, you know, or the poet is is trying to evoke all kinds of sensory responses to the interaction between the men, man and the woman, and and 
is is your point about the technology like the the idea that this isn't, isn't technologically possible that um simply that they didn't have the technology to capture pictures or is it is it more broadly that that what the poet does in describing the woman it isn't something you can kind of re- reconstruct easily well i think both of those are dimensions of it i guess in part i'm thinking about um laura mulvey's really um, influential art article now it's quite dated, but um, talking about the male gaze, right? This very famous um, tapas, and for good reason, in feminist critical discourse. Um, and I just, I think that it is impossible to map that in a, in a one-for-one way on the Song of Songs, because she's writing specifically about cinema, right? Where the male gaze is, um, where the male gaze is enshrined by the stance of the the photographer, right? And the um, literal objectification of the, the woman in the process. And I think that's not quite what we see. I just don't think it's a one-for-one one because, because we don't get that objectifying distance. Instead, we get um, a multi-layered, multi-sensory, um, complex, imaginary view that attempts to see both near and far at once, both panoramic and intimately detailed. And so this kind of complex form of viewing I argue, is um, is a function, an aesthetic function that attempts to account for the experience of being in a lover's presence. So how do you account for that effective dimension of your experience in a landscape? It's not a straightforward thing to do, right? Um, in fact, it's a very difficult thing to do. It, it, it repays revisiting over and over again. What is it that, that, um, that beauty or that... Um, experience in that landscape what is it that it evokes how can you explain it to someone else it's not fully explainable i think that's kind of the essential problem that the descriptive poems are dealing with hmm. so uh, in in thinking about um the descriptions of bodily beauty that we get in the song of songs i'm, I'm curious of what you think or maybe what challenge song of songs brings to um, moderns, especially in a kind of age of, of pornography and, and, and where the book would kind of um, offer uh, more depth or richness or, you know, a kind of uh, counter voice? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, people have asked this question, is the Song of Songs pornographic? Um, is that a problem or not? Um, and people, of course, have various answers to that. And I think that the, the main thing that you'd see in the Song of Songs, it certainly is erotic, but um, everything is cloaked in metaphor. And what you ultimately see is a song about desire. There's a lot of, um, there's never an act of consummation that's described in the Song of Songs. Instead, you get the tension between the, um, the woman and the man and the distance between them that they're attempting to overcome. And the song ends not in consummation, but in um, in distance. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of spices, right? Huh. It's Is returning that just... to that image that you uh, uh, from the poem you read earlier. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, there's a lot of um, reiterated tropes throughout the song. Um, But this is a trope, the gazelle is a trope of distance. It's not a trope of consummation. And um, I think that's a really um, important point to highlight in thinking about the Song of Songs is that unlike, unlike pornography, which, well, I... I have no interest in offering a definition of pornography, but I will <laughs> yeah. say that it is much more interested in um, in the emotion and the emotional states of desire than it is in mm. the um, actualities of consummation. Yeah, that's really helpful, um, and it reminds me too of another idea that I've I've heard before. Um, it, there was a comparison with um, I, I think the term is wasif poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, the Arabic term for description. There's a a genre of descriptive poetry um, in Arabic literature that uses this, a similar form, a form of description. Okay, and, and a list of item, sort of a list of all the lover's beautiful features. Yeah, and, and that it it doesn't just focus on particular parts of the male or female anatomy, but it it it's it's like head to toe beauty. Uh, so so it, so it's more holistic and encompassing than uh, pornography. I think some of those differences also uh, obtain 
as well. Yeah, sure. You get this. All of you is beautiful, my love. Every All of you is beautiful. So despite the fact that all of the person is not described, the person is described only selectively in parts, um, there's this affirmation that somehow the sum total exceeds exceeds all of that. There's this an appreciation for the whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, really helpful. Um, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of the interview, um, but I'm just curious as a kind of stepping back question, uh, what, what would you say is Song of Songs potential uh, for, for kind of common readers of this book? Uh, people, let's say in the church, who might be wondering how this book is meant to, to speak to them today. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks to a couple of things. Um, as I've mentioned, it speaks to a very deep um, love and connection for a, a sense of place. It speaks to people's sense of place, um, a sense of love and care for uh, the natural, what we call the natural world. Um, at the same time, it's very much a text about about people, a text about love and desire. And um, that too is is important to valorize, perhaps particularly in church contexts where that's not something that often gets talked about the importance of um, the erotic dimension of human experience. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, uh, Elaine, this has been a a rich and fascinating discussion, and I want to just encourage our listeners to uh, check out her book and um, make sure that you get yourself a copy. So, Elaine, thank you for joining OnScript. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.